and somewhat of a professional persuader or influencer, I guess. Um, I do think a lot about how to change minds because that is how you get people on your side. You have to understand them. You have to listen to them. And I never heard about this technique before, but I think the effect is very, very uh, useful, especially when the stakes are extremely high. So here is guided metacognition in deep canvassing. I flew out to Los Angeles and I went to the LGBT Center of Los Angeles. They have several buildings in LA and I went to the one where Dave Fleischer works. And Dave Fleischer had developed this thing called deep canvassing after they lost on Prop 8. There was this legal thing that went through in, in California where they said, no, same-sex marriage will not be legal here. And they were stunned that, that they had been uh, defeated. And so he just wanted to understand how that happened. And he had this radical idea of, why don't we just go door to door and ask people? In many of the conversations, people would change their minds and they were recording the conversations and they did this A-B testing thing, this sort of playback to see what happened there. And over the course of more than 17,000 conversations, almost all of them recorded on video, A-B testing it, throwing away what doesn't work, keeping what does work. They developed this method for you knock on a person's door, you talk to them in a particular way, you ask questions in a particular order, you non-judgmentally listen to what they have to say about the issue, and then you help them introspect in a way they've never introspected before by giving them a number scale. And all of the persuasion techniques I talk about in the book have this number scale where you just say, how strongly do you feel about X? Or how, how much do you believe this is true? You know, How much confidence do you have in X? And so on. And then when a person gives you the number from, say, 0 to 10 or 1 to 100, you then say, why does that number feel right to you? And the conversation leaves immediately the binary debate space and becomes this unspooling of what are my reasons for thinking this way? What motivated all this? And you allow the person to do that on exploration. You're just there to kind of help and, and move it forward. And over time, this has became so successful as a technique that they were actually getting a lot of people to change their minds to the point that the scientists started studying them. And today it's being used in phone banks for all, for all sorts of different topics. They had this huge archive. And one of the times I visited, I said, can I just go to the archives? And they said, sure. And it really felt like something out of like a FBI thriller or something. They have this room all to itself that has uh, several ways to, to read and watch and, and view all their stuff. And they have this amazing archive, very well organized, going all the way back to the beginning. And I watched 80 of these. I spent uh, days in there. It was, it was incredible. And there was one in particular that just stuck out, which was um, the Mustang Man. They call him the Mustang Man. And one of the canvassers approaches this man. He is in the garage with him. And you know they ask him how he voted on same-sex marriage. He voted against it. And he's in his 70s. He's wearing shorts. He's got a dress shirt. He's smoking a cigarette. He's got the Zippo lighter that he's toying with. And he tells them, you know, I'm not against gay stuff necessarily. I just wish they wouldn't cause such a ruckus, is the way he put it. He said the country has enough problems as it is. I don't know why they have to keep causing all these problems. And so the canvasser doesn't respond like, how dare you? Doesn't say you should be ashamed for saying such a thing. They just start asking questions. Oh, that's, huh, I'm wondering why you feel that way. And where you at on the number scale? And, and, and it's just opening up space for this person to explore how they feel about it. And in one of the questions, he asks if he had ever been married before. And the Mustang man says, for, yeah, for 43 years. And she passed away. She passed away about 11 years ago. And I'm never going to get over it because I was supposed to die first. And then he says, let me show you something. And he takes him out and he uncovers they had this tarp over it, his wife's vintage Mustang. 
and he still maintains it. It's like his central hobby. He works on it all the time, keeps it in perfect, pristine condition. And he's smoking a cigarette. He says, you know, she never smoked a day. She didn't even drink. She wouldn't let me smoke in the car. And he explains that one day she found a black spot on her gums. It was cancer. It spread to her throat. She couldn't speak. They had to talk to each other across a notepad and she died. And just out of nowhere, he wasn't prompted. He said, uh, don't pursue money or other riches. Just find happiness with somebody because material things are loaned. Happiness is not loaned. It's yours. I feel I'm getting tearing up thinking about this again. Um, and then the canvasser responded by just listening, by just opening this, holding the space and says, you know, it seems like 11 years is a long time to be alone. And he says, it gives you a lot of time to think. And he, and he said this statement where he stopped and let there be silence, where he said that, uh, sometimes he hears songs that they loved and he cries. And sometimes he remembers jokes that they laughed about and he laughs. And he said, uh, he's never gotten over her and that's okay by him. I don't want to get over her. And so without any prompting, he then says, while looking in the distance, I would want these gay people to be happy too. And he convinces himself that he was wrong. And he says, you know what? I'd vote for it this time. And it was incredible to watch this conversation unfold because he clearly was against it. And until he had this conversation with a deep canvasser, he didn't know that he could feel otherwise. It required someone opening a space and going through what they would consider in psychology guided metacognition, something that takes place in a lot of therapeutic models where you give a person an opportunity to discover where their current attitude comes from and an opportunity to discover that perhaps they could see it otherwise, which was already available to them. And that's why I say in the book that persuasion, the kind that I advocate and the kind that really works, is more about giving a person an opportunity to understand that they can change their mind, that it's possible than anything else, because all mind change takes place on the other side. People change their own minds, and you're encouraging them to engage in some sort of metacognitive process that will get them there. It's incredible to see it when it unfolds and works in that way. You've got to open that space up for people to, to change their own minds. But what I wanted to come back to, to, to Charlie Veach because he apparently he had the same space, he had the same context as all of these other truthers. Mm -hmm. And none of them considered changing their minds for a second. And he wasn't subjected to any clever, deep canvassing or street epistemology. There was something in him yes. that was different. So, so what, what was different about Charlie? What was different about his life when he went into that process with the BBC that led him coming out on a different path from the others? Sure. And I can say also to preface this, every person that I met who had left either a conspiratorial community or a cult or a pseudo cult or something along those lines, there was something else at play and it was this. In Charlie's case... All those things I talked about when we first started talking about him, all those things that led him into the conspiracy, that led him to even search for something, to be amenable to it, to be open to it, they were being satisfied in the truther community in a, in, a, in, in a way that he enjoyed. Plus, he had some fame there that felt really good as a person who had been considered lesser than. He also he was, he was interested in all sorts of anarchy-themed communities, and he had found another one called Truth Juice. They're, they're a group that was more open your third eye Let's play around with psychedelics. Let's discuss the simulation theory of, of the universe, stuff like that. And in that community, he was finding that all those same things that motivated him to go into the truth community were being more nurtured there. And he was slowly moving up there too. He was He's very charismatic. He's a great public speaker. So he was doing a great job of doing these kind of things that made him move up in the truth world inside the truth juice world. None of the other truthers had anything like that. They didn't have a foot in two social worlds the way he did. In other words, they didn't have a social safety net. 
even though the evidence was persuasive to them, the costs of accepting it were something they could not absorb, whereas he could. They had to think of the same things. I'm going to be shamed. I'm going to be ostracized. And none of this is articulated. No, this is salient. This is the things that are motivating their behavior without their knowledge for the most part. But he feels safe to change his mind. He feels safe. So he, he could change his mind. So he did. Yeah. This thing that everybody said, the other truth has said, like who got to him? The answer is, well, this slightly wacky pyramids and crystals, energy circles, truth juice movement got to him, not in the way that they put a gun to his head or paid him off, but just that they they were offering him an alternative, slightly wacky, but much more benevolent mm-hmm. community that he knew he could flourish in. And it's not totally unlike what happens in deep canvassing, because in deep canvassing, one sort of representative of another community comes along and says, I will listen to you in a non-judgmental, empathetic way, and I will hear you out and I won't push back against it, and I won't shame you for what you're saying. In many cases, it's the first time that person's ever experienced that with someone who they thought would immediately jump into a debate and argue with them and get angry and possibly go to fisticuffs. And with the people I met who left Westboro Baptist Church, particularly Megan Fels Roper, very similar to what happened with Charlie in the... We should say uh, Westboro is this church that's famous for just being incredibly inflammatory, showing up at the funerals of veterans who've died in Afghanistan and saying, thank God for dead soldiers and just deliberately getting in people's faces. And and it's kind of this strange yeah. cult-like organization. And you talked to several people yeah. who had left about that journey. Yeah, they're, they're one of the most prominent hate groups in the United States. They're very anti-Semitic. And when I say very, that's they're about the most anti-Semitic that a group could be. Megan Phelps, who was, she was a, a younger member of the group who was active on social media. They loved this about the fact that she was good at getting on social media and she pretty much spent all day arguing with people. And somebody who was prominent in the Jewish community, they reached out to her over Twitter and they extended a hand. They said, I'd like to spend time with you. I want to talk to you about this and hear you out. I want to understand your position. I want to hear more about what you think, feel, and believe. I'm curious in you. And in a compassionate, transparent, non judgmental way, they opened up a space just to talk. And then as they started building a bit of rapport with each other, he started making fun of her, making little jokes, the kind of stuff that you would do with your friend when you leave a movie theater. He started just trolling her and they developed a friendly rapport, even though they both knew they were on two different sides ideologically. And over time, it had an effect to the point that she she was at some sort of a public event where people kind of circled her because a lot of people hate Westboro's church. And he was there in person and he defended her. And when some things happened in, in the Westboro that she didn't like, which is similar to what happened with Charlie, that he had that experience where he's like, oh, that was gross. I don't like this. And she started having a, the foot in both worlds. And when it came time to leave, that was the off ramp that got her out of that world. What I find compelling about all these stories is that I always thought people changed their beliefs, then they left the groups. But most often what happens is they leave the groups and then they change their beliefs. And there's something else that is involved for making them feel like, I don't think this community is the right community for me. And it should offer you some cognitive empathy for the people on the other side of issues where if you can recognize they may be trapped by those same tribal tendencies, they may actually be imprisoned by this thing, then you can approach them with this sort of non-judgmental, compassionate listening frame in a way that addresses that part of the motivation that is keeping them away from accepting the evidence that you think should just speak for itself. There's more than one story towards the end of your book in which it seems that you are 
setting up to use your clever <laughs> psychological hacks and conversational strategies mm -hmm. to change somebody's mind. And in both cases, actually, you don't. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. Do you think sometimes we're just too desperate to change other people? I, I do. In the introduction, I try to make it very clear that you really need to ask yourself why you want to do this. Because I had had several experiences after getting what I felt was like, wow, I have this incredible superpower now. I can just change minds. I spent time with a, a flat earther, <laughs> the great Mark Sargent. And we, had a, we were having a good time in Sweden. We both got one of those invites that just comes out of nowhere. Come to Sweden, come on stage and talk about this. Because they had heard me talk about it as flat earthers on the podcast. And he's a prominent flat earther. But we had such a good time hanging yeah. out and he was such a fun person. It was such a, it was interesting. I took the technique up to the point where he said he was totally open to changing his mind, maybe. And then I could tell that if I pushed more than that, that it would ruin everything, that we'd never be able to talk for the rest of the time. And it felt, it felt, what's the good in that? I would rather us have a, a good time in Sweden and, and then go get some uh, food. It's very easy to assume that the facts are on your side. It's very easy to assume that you're the hero in the story. And I was so excited about deep canvassing when I, when I left the first time that I went there that I sat down with my friend Misha Gloverman, who is a conflict resolution, actual professional negotiator. I told them they're trying, there's one of the great statements they make is, I'm just trying to solve a mystery together with you. And I was telling him, you know, the mystery is like, why do we disagree? And he's like, uh, the mystery for the deep canvassers is, uh, why are you wrong? And I'm right. I was like, no, no, that's, that's not where they're coming from. And he's like, David, they're biased. I mean, I agree with them. You agree with them. We share their values. And we think that what they're doing is good because we feel that, that we want the LGBTQ people to have more freedoms in this world. We want the laws to change. We want that. But don't kid yourself that it isn't persuasion. But at that point in the journey, I had thought to myself, no, they were just putting people on, on the, the correct path. But I had to admit, yeah, it is persuasion. And they were biased. So be be honest with yourself at least that you are biased and and be sure that the, you're biased in the direction of what you're trying to do is reduce harm in this world and be aware of the fact that it's possible you could be misleading yourself into thinking you're reducing harm when you're not. I think that the LGBT Center of Los Angeles is absolutely reducing harm in this world, but I can imagine other people who would try to employ such techniques who would be convinced of such a thing and I would not agree with them. David McCraney is the host of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. You should all be subscribing. And he is the author of the wonderful new book, How Minds Change. David, thank you so much for joining Cautionary Tales. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure.